Welcome to Trinity University's Learning Together podcast series. I'm Nathan Cohn, class of 1995, your host for this series featuring faculty, alumni, and other distinguished guests who have established themselves as experts in their fields. This podcast is part of the university's lifelong learning initiative designed especially for alumni. Each month, we present discussions and presentations on a variety of subjects. And today, you'll enjoy a conversation with Gina Getke, class of 89. Gina is an attorney who's board certified as a specialist in estate planning and probate law by the Texas Board of Legal Specialization and a member of the College of the State Bar of Texas. She's also a certified public accountant. Gina Getke will be in conversation with Chris Howland, Director of Planned Giving at Trinity University's Alumni Relations and Development. Their conversation covers planning for disability, what happens if you die in Texas and don't have a will or alternative estate plan in place, and what some major issues might be to consider regarding drafting an estate plan. So I really encourage my clients, communicate with your kids. These things are important, but we have to figure it out. You'll also learn how critical it is to have a communication plan. Gina, it's so good to see you again, and thank you so much for helping us inform our constituents, our alumni and friends and parents about estate planning, the basics. The fact is, the majority of us will become disabled or incapacitated for a period of time in our life. What are the documents each person should have in place to handle this situation? Okay, so I always start off to tell everybody I'm not trying to scare anyone with my stories but everything that I will tell you has happened in my office. Okay, so the first basic document is a financial power of attorney, trying to make sure someone else, be that your spouse, a child, your best friend, can legally step into your shoes to help you out. Some of the things a financial power of attorney can cover would be signing your name to your income tax return, you can't do that any longer, you got to send a copy of that to the IRS. Um, being able to call Social Security or Medicare on your behalf. Gaining access to retirement account is one thing a lot of people don't think about, but your spouse cannot just make a withdrawal from your 401k or IRA because they are your spouse. And I've had that happen in our office. A couple years ago, I helped a lady um, whose husband had a terrible stroke. He's in a nursing home and she decided they needed to sell the house because it was too big. He could not sign his name to that sales paperwork, but because we had done a power of attorney three years ago, she could sign his name. And I actually just had a client call me today. Bless her heart. She's losing her sight and has a very good friend. And she said, you know, my friend needs to be my guardian. Well, but all that paperwork we did two years ago eliminates the need to do guardianship and she can step into your shoes today to help you out. So it was very um, a good news for her. Mm-hmm. She was relieved. Okay. Sure. So, so one is a financial power of attorney. One is obviously a medical power of attorney. We all make our own medical decisions for ourselves, but we can get into a situation temporary or permanent where we cannot communicate who could step in and make a general daily medical decision surgery authorization, prescription medication decisions, asking for a second opinion before somebody touches you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And to piggyback on a medical power of attorney, I do a broad HIPAA authorization form to make sure that the, at least the individuals named on that medical power of attorney can communicate with your medical providers. So those are the government's privacy rules. 
Um, sometimes I have clients that will put additional people on their HIPAA form. It's not necessarily who they want to make a decision for them, but they want them to be able to communicate with their medical community. I always tell folks in my office, that's the smallest document I do in our office. I think it's used more often than anything. Mm-hmm. I actually had a surgeon in my office uh, several weeks ago. His father had just passed away in California and he looked at me and said, I checked my father into the exact same hospital no less than seven times, and it was the first thing they asked me for when I hit the door mm-hmm. was his HIPAA form for his father, mm-hmm. even though he was a doctor. Right. made no difference. Yeah. A lot of my clients asked me to do uh, an advanced directive for them, sometimes called a living will. In Texas, that's specifically called a directive to physician and family. Uh, your ability to leave a statement to your family, your medical providers, as to your wishes regarding extended artificial life support if you are unable to communicate that for yourself. Um, Very helpful for the family when they're in that tough decision. I always say, you know, you're not really making this decision for your mother. You're following the wishes that she set out for you. Mm -hmm. Um, I always pick on my family. My mother was a nurse. She had five advanced directives. It was her communication to me of everything she absolutely did not want. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I, you know, if I had, had to make that decision for her, it would not have bothered me because she communicated very clearly what she did not want. Right. So those are very helpful. Uh, some clients will do a declaration of guardian. I don't do this for everyone, but some people have a strained relationship with family members, and they're concerned. Hey, I may have my friend on my financial power of attorney, but if one of my brothers goes and gets guardianship over me, then that would trump that power of attorney. It can trump a financial, it can trump a medical. So a lot of times I'll do them more often to disqualify somebody from being able to be named your guardian. That's not a very common one, but it does happen. Mm-hmm. Last one is an appointment of agent to control disposition of remains. This is very important for people who don't have family. Um, Maybe they live with somebody, but they're not married to that person. These individuals cannot make your funeral arrangements. Under the Health and Safety Code, it is next of kin. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people don't want that. They have a strained relationship with the family, and they really want to turn to someone else to be able to make their funeral arrangements. I know I have a client that, she has no family. And I uh, did one of these for her friend, and one of the funeral homes called me and said, thank you for doing that. <laughs> nobody, nobody does it, but if we didn't have this, we would not be talking to the friend. Right. So those issues can come up. You can leave funeral requests in there as well. Do you want to be cremated? Where do you want to be buried? All that can be on that form. Terrific. I know from my own personal experience, all of those documents are very important for a husband or a mother or a father or a sibling. doesn't matter. Right. What happens if you die in Texas and do not have a will or alternative estate plan in place? So the fact is about two-thirds of the folks that pass away in the United States die without an estate plan, meaning your state dictates where your assets go. Um, we can use a somewhat recent example. The singer Prince died. Yes. He did not have a will. No, he did not. And it has taken a good two years to try to actually figure out who his heirs are. He was a fairly charitably inclined individual during his life. 
nothing went to charity. I have no idea if his estate's going where he wanted it to. Mm-hmm. Um, I have had just some terrible situations in my office and it, it usually is a blended family. This is the one that trips people up, but client called her husband passed away and she's in my office and they didn't have any children together. And she said he didn't have any kids. I'm like, well, that's good. And then all of a sudden she's getting to walk out and she said, well, you know, he did have a child from his first marriage. I'm like, well, because he didn't have a will, the state of Texas says his half of everything goes to his child, not to you. We had to hire a private investigator to find her, and that woman sat in my office crying. That's not fair, because he really had not spoken to this daughter for 30 years. Mm. It didn't matter. So it's it's kind of a shocking thing sometimes. If, if something was on a napkin written, i give my estate to somebody. It would be better than dying without an estate plan, because mm. Texas or your state— will dictate who your heirs are. And that may not be what you want. No. (laughs) I'm hoping that doesn't happen to any of us. Yes. (laughs) Just get it done. (laughs) (laughs) What are some major issues to consider regarding drafting an estate plan? So some of the things that I make my clients think about when they come into my office to do an estate plan is beneficiaries. Obviously, if, if I've got clients that have younger children... We cannot leave assets outright to a younger child, and the magic age in Texas is 18, and most of my clients don't want to leave stuff to an 18-year-old outright. Mm -hmm. That age actually tends to get bigger and bigger and bigger, older, older, older. Um, So we're talking about creating a trust if something happens to both the parents, for example. And what does that mean? That means appointing a trustee. I always tell folks, trustee starts with trust. Trustee is management skills. You're going to have my child's inheritance. I want you to spend it on my child for health, education, support, maintenance. Please say yes and no as you think we would have said yes and no. Substitute financial parent. It's the best way I can describe that job. But a lot of clients don't think about, well, my kids are older, so I can just, we don't have to have a trust. But generally, we'll put clauses in that says, well, if a child doesn't survive both of you and leaves children of their own, those grandchildren would step in and take what their parent would have taken. We can now have a younger beneficiary inheriting. So it is things to really think about, you know, what is the age? The age, like I said, gets older on me. So the average is about 30 to 40 right now. What I see clients picking is when am I actually going to turn the checkbook over to a younger beneficiary? Uh, Some people really struggle with that. Um, Another one would be just kids that don't have money management skills. So I have had a string of people in that have children in their 30s, their 40s, their 50s. No money management skills. And they just don't want it to get blown. They want to make sure their child's taken care of, but they just know they can't turn that checkbook over. Those are tough conversations because it's easy to say, well, we'll put it in a trust. Who's that trustee going to be? A lot of parents will say, well, one of my other kids will do it. And my normal advice is that is not conducive to happy Thanksgiving. (laughs) (laughs) To have one child in control of another child's inheritance siblings, we can try it, but I always try to give those people an opt out. Sometimes we turn to banks that have trust departments to do that. Um, Of course, 
folks come in that have kids on drugs. I mean, all kinds of issues that we really have to kind of work through and think about what is the best way to approach this. I had a client in the other day that her daughter's facing, seems to be a fairly serious mental illness. Mm -hmm. And it was, again, these discussions of, are we ever going to give her the checkbook? The whole kind of big concept to remember on estate planning is we plan for today. We can always change it. So I don't know what's going to happen in this young lady's life, but we know what it is today. If it gets better in five years, we'll change it. Mm-hmm. It's not a problem, but but that's all we can focus on is today. Um, of course, I have clients that are blended families, and a lot of times we really need to think about that. As um, It seems simple. The the amount you can pass for you the state tax is a huge number now, so people come in, well, I'll just leave everything outright to my spouse, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, if that's a blended family, I'm always saying, okay, that's fine, but understand one of you dies, we live, leave everything outright to the surviving spouse, that spouse could change their will after you die. And, you know, their stepkids, your kids may never get anything. Right. So a lot of times we have to kind of think about those plans. Does that make sense for the family or do we need to do something different, even how the spouse inherits so that we possibly ensure the kids are going to get something. Right. At least if you're the first to go, you kind of know my kids will get something at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I have a lot of clients in my office. I'm not picking on the men, but women are concerned about their husbands getting remarried mm-hmm. if, if the woman dies first. Right. And again, we can address these issues in an estate plan. They're just things to think about. They're questions I ask when people come into the office. Mm-hmm. Um, I have, uh, special needs beneficiaries and that can be the whole range that can be young kids that can be someone in their 60s, 70s. Right. If we've got a beneficiary who's on resource-based benefits, either from the state they live in or from the federal government, if you don't structure that inheritance correctly, you're knocking them off of those benefits. A lot of parents will come in to think, say, well, I have to disinherit my special needs child. Right. And we don't have to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually have a trust, special needs trust that kind of sits on, in my office. It has a lot of money in it. But we decided to keep this young lady on Medicaid, just in a concern that if we got her on a different type of insurance plan, maybe she'd use it all up. Right. But she goes to Disney World. She goes to <laughs> concerts. We, you know, the trustee can pay for all of that, but we've maintained the benefits. So that's something we need to think about. Hello, this is Danny Anderson, president of Trinity University. Thank you for listening to the Learning Together podcast series brought to you by Trinity's Office of Alumni Relations and Development and produced here on campus by our friends at KRTU 91.7 FM. We're so glad you tuned in today and we appreciate your continued support of lifelong learning at Trinity University. Welcome back to the Learning Together podcast from Trinity University. I'm Nathan Cohn. Let's return to the conversation with Gina Getke and Chris Howland. The last one for parents that have younger kids, and I will just say, if folks come into my office and we may answer every single question except for guardian of a minor child, that's the ones that sit on my uh, inbox a long time. Mm -hmm. We may never get it done. 
You know, if something happens to both parents, who is your child going to live with? It's hard. It's a hard decision to make. I probably changed it five times over my kid's childhood mm-hmm. because, again, we can always change it. Right. But, you know, I had a couple in last week and they just, you know, it was her family, his family, and they could not agree. I'm like, look, pick something. <laughs> <laughs> Something's better than nothing. Because if it did happen, then a judge is going to be making this decision. And that's not what you want. No. So let's compromise. Let's figure out. And they picked godparents. Mm-hmm. You know, and it was just like, you know, if that doesn't work, we can always change it. Right. It's, I think it's one of the hardest things for young parents to make a decision on. They really struggle at that guardianship. The fact is I've never had that apply in my office. I'm knocking on a piece of wood. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but it should be what you want because it could happen. Sure. Okay. Sure. Um, the other thing I always tell clients that we'll get through all this stuff and then they get very frustrated at me. I have a disaster clause. I mean, what if the entire family gets on the wrong airplane? Mm-hmm. I would want your stuff to go where you want it versus where the state of Texas would say it would go. Mm-hmm. Some people, again, they don't want things to go to their siblings or they'd rather go to nieces and nephews versus siblings. Some people want to go to charity instead. So that's just, again, part of the things we have to think about in an estate plan. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and as you say, things you can change it. You can always do, change it. Do you find that the first time making these decisions is the most difficult and then subsequent times when people things come and they it's a little easier I think it's a little easier um other than guardianship right again it always just is a difficult thing or if we've had a big change in the family Mm -hmm. so again if 10 years ago we could not anticipate a kid having a drug issue or having an illness Mm -hmm. then we have to come struggle with some of those tougher issues but uh, I do recommend, you know, if, if my clients get their estate plan done, great, you got mm-hmm. it done. <laughs> uh-huh. I'm, I'm, you know, pat yourself on the back. Uh-huh. I do recommend people pull that out at least every five years. Mm-hmm. Who's on first? Who's on second? What are these decisions that we made? Right. It's easy to go in and adjust it once we've built the house. Mm-hmm. That's just a little remodel. Right. But you have to go and look at it periodically to make sure and you know kids get older Mm -hmm. so we may have had other people in these jobs right and now your kids got older and you can shift them in Mm -hmm. so about every five years you should at least pull it out and look at the big picture great thank you okay you've got your estate plan review uh would you talk about reviewing probate versus non-probate property right so We have beautiful estate plans done, and then my clients will uh, sidestep their pretty estate plan based on how beneficiary designations are done or how accounts are held. Um, Again, some unpleasant conversations in my office. Probably the first one years ago, it should have been so easy. Mm -hmm. Mama died. Mom's got a house. She's got a Two bank accounts, checking and savings. The son lived with his mother. The two daughters lived out of state. Mom's will says equally to the three. And I'm looking, I said, you know, um, the son's name was on the mother's bank accounts. And they were on there in a fashion where at her death, it was a beneficiary designation to him. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking at everybody like, well, you know, all the money in the accounts went to your brother it's not controlled by your mother's will. He could 
share. <laughs> and I thought the two girls were about to pass out, <laughs> but I couldn't force him to do that. You know, we, we had a way to try to get it back into her will or he could have gifted. He wouldn't have had a problem with that, but I could not force him to do it. And I really don't know what he did. Mm-hmm. So I really tried to make sure clients think about you've got life insurance policies. What are the beneficiary designations on those? Does it coordinate with our estate plan that we just done, we just completed? Um, I had a client who passed away and she had her 10-year-old and 13-year-old named as beneficiaries of her life insurance policy. Well, you can't do that. Mm-hmm. You know, they won't pay out to a minor and they shouldn't. Mm-hmm. So we had to go to the courts and get a trust created and that costs money and mm-hmm. then the courts involved in it. And also it's a little bit younger age than she probably would have wanted is to when that trust will terminate because I'm I'm governed by the Texas Estates Code here in Texas as to how, how old can we keep that trust going. Mm-hmm. So you have to look at life insurance. You have to look at bank accounts. You have to look at retirement accounts. All these things can have beneficiary designations and they may not be coordinating with your pretty estate plan that you just got done. So we have to watch those. Okay. Uh, what are some of the critical communications uh, around all of this planning with your family or beneficiaries of your estate? Right. Communication is so important. So one is you got your estate planning documents done. Where are you going to keep them? Safe deposit box is probably the safest. I very much encourage my clients to have somebody else sign the signature card so that we can get in there. Mm-hmm. Even if they can't find the key, if they're on the signature card, it's easy to get drilled. I had a client who passed away last year. It took us about six months oh to gosh. coordinate with a particular financial institution here in San Antonio with the courts to try to get her safe deposit, safe deposit box drilled open. Mm-hmm. And everything was stuck until then. Wow. So where is it? If it's in a safe in your house, does somebody have the combination to that safe. (laughs) I know this happened when my mother died. There was a safe in her house. I knew it. No combination. Four hours of a, you know, someone trying to drill it open. And then there was nothing in there. (laughs) Um, They do have to be safe. So uh, home safes, I tell my clients, are fireproof to an extent, but not necessarily waterproof. So Ziploc bag and then into that safe. Same thing with gun safes. A lot of people have gun safes. They can get moisture in them and paper and moisture don't work together. Mm -hmm. So we really have to keep them safe. Let people know where they are because sometimes we have to find them. We provide digital copies of everything our clients sign to them. Sometimes folks will email those digital copies out to the appointed agents, and that's great. But that will, we really need the original will. It is difficult to probate a copy of a will Mm -hmm. because I have to prove to the court that the decedent didn't revoke their will by ripping it up. We're kind of overcoming something. Um, I haven't had a problem so far yet, but it's just more hoops to jump through, and more hoops means more money. Mm -hmm. So keep the original safe. Let us know where they are. Um, lists, uh, this is becoming more and more and more important lists of passwords. That's easy, but where do you keep those safe? I don't know that I have a great answer to that. Mm -hmm. Um, but I've certainly had clients pass away where we don't have passwords to stuff. We do have a new digital act in Texas that is supposed to make gaining access 
to this type of digital information easier. So we have specific language now in our wills and our financial powers of attorney. It's just too new. I haven't really seen how effective it is Mm -hmm. to be able to get to this stuff. Um, But again, I had a client who passed away. Her son ended up locking up all the iPhone devices and her mother wanted me to get a court order to make Apple unlock the iPhone because all the pictures of her daughter with her children are on the cloud. Oh, wow. And I called the courthouse, talked to the judge's staff attorney, and they were like, don't even file it. Oh. Because oh. it's a domino effect. Okay. Um, if you have appointed people in your documents as your agents, please let them know. <laughs> yes. Sometimes it's a surprise. Mm-hmm. And then the last thing I, I tell my clients, and nobody believes me, but in a family, when the second parent passes away, the greatest source of fussing and disharmony in my office is the division of the stuff in the house. Because mm-hmm. it's easy to take a bank account and divide it in half or divide it by three, and everybody sees they got their fair share. Right. But it's an emotional time. And things in the house have memories, and these memories create very weird artificial values. And I have seen families absolutely implode on each other over really minor, minor things. Mm-hmm. I have had a custody battle over a lawnmower. <laughs> Not riding, push. A push lawnmower? A push lawnmower. Oh, my. Four children, two lawyers, a lawnmower. It was the silliest thing ever. Like, why would you pay two lawyers to deal with this? But they did. They still have it. 15 years later, these four kids share custody of this lawnmower. I don't know what it was. I've seen, you know, I've had pianos. I have had bowls. I've jewelry. Um, Mm -hmm. So I really encourage my clients, communicate with your kids. Is there something that they want? Mm -hmm. Um, While you're here, it's kind of easy to figure it out. If it's never been discussed, it gets bad. Yeah. It just can get terrible. Um, And it seems very petty, but it's not. It's important. It's important. These things are important, but we have to figure it out. So I'd rather mom and dad be the referees and try to figure it out. Write a letter. I've had color-coded dots on stuff. I've had sticky notes on stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, I always give my clients uh, an example of a letter to start off. You can change it whenever you want, but if you have a particular thing in the house that you want a child to get, write it down. Mm -hmm. Please communicate it with us. If I've had those instructions left, I don't have children fussing. Right. If it's silent and no one's ever talked about it, it can get really bad. Yeah. And let's just avoid that because I'm in the middle and I can't figure it out for them. They got to figure it out for themselves. Right. Right. So those are the most important things. Communicate. Communicate. Thank you so much. Once again, wonderful advice and information. Thank you so much. You're welcome. (laughs) Thanks for listening to the Learning Together podcast. I'm Nathan Cohn. Today's episode was recorded and produced by Trinity University's KRTU radio station for the Office of Alumni Relations and Development. New podcasts will be released on the last Friday of each month. For more information about our Learning Together podcast series or to suggest a topic for a future episode, please email us at alumnipodcast at trinity.edu.